Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. That's where we're going to be. Exodus 19. By the way, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we have them out on that table. So if you need to go, if you don't even own a Bible, this is yours to keep. Uh, You can head out there. You can grab one of the Bibles off that table. And uh, I want to pray before we start. I've been having this... um, you know, uh, it, it, life is full of undulation. <laughs> you know, it's full of ups and downs. It's full of moments of feeling incredible passion for the things that you're a part of and moments of feeling just kind of numb. And I have been in this season the past uh, probably three or four days of, um, of almost re-meeting God. <laughs> you know, you, 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 he, he every now and then shows up in your life and dismays you. And you're like, woe is me. You are so other and yet you've come so close. I'm amazed. And then you get used to it. You get used to it. You have to build language around it. You build metaphors around it, around what, what he is or what he does and, in your life. And, and you kind of get used to it. And then every now and then, I don't know about you, but I pray, just dismay me again. Amaze me again. Put me on my heels again. I want to see you clearly because I think that I've sentimentalized some of you. And I just feel, I'm in this season where I just feel like God is like showing me himself again and just saying, you know, you thought I was this big, but now, now you're getting a much larger picture of how I really am. And um, it's just wonderful. Just wonderful. So I just want to pray that for, our, for us as a church. Maybe if this is you and you want this as well, you could put your hand over your heart. Just speak to that, that deep place in you that just says, I want to know you again. I want to see you again. So, so God, would you reveal yourself to us this morning? You know, we don't come here for any other reason but you. You know, everything else is icing on the cake, but Lord, we want to see you this morning. Maybe even just say that with me. We want to see you this morning. We want to see you, Jesus. So we invite you to show up this morning, to come and dismay us again, come and amaze us again. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the things that we've been thinking about as a team is that uh, this move to this building is sort of like a replanting of the church. Uh, there was an image of, uh, he's going to be all right. Just, just extend a hand over there to Finn. <laughs> it's like, back at Northside, the sound wasn't quite so echoey. So, you know, it's just you could get away with it a little bit easier then. Uh, but one of the things that we've, we've been thinking about is that this is kind of like a replanting of the church. If you were to take a plant and take it out of a pot and put it into another pot, you would be thinking about how do we make this hospitable for these roots that we develop so specifically over here to continue to grow here. And uh, so, so one of the things that I was sensing um, for the next couple weeks, for this week and next week, is that we need to go back to the why. Why Saints Hill? 
What is Saints Hill all about? And especially for those of you who maybe last week was your first week or this week is your first week, uh, we really want to address this very simple question this morning. What is Saints Hill? What is it? What is this church? Who, who are the saints? And what hill are we talking about? <laughs> Uh, This story that's before us, the story of the exodus out of Egypt, is the story of the people of Israel coming out of slavery and into the care of Yahweh, which is just the perfect metaphor for the gospel. Coming out of whatever bounds you up before meeting God and into a place of, because I trust you, it's beginning to set me free in these different areas that I was once bound up in. And so this story is is a story of these people literally coming out of physical slavery into the wilderness, and in the wilderness, they begin to worship God. They begin to get a new rhythm of what does it look like to interact with God. They they begin to have meals in front of their enemies. All all the things that you would think you shouldn't do or you'd be afraid of or would have even kept them back in, you know, Egypt was kind of nice. They begin to strip those things away through trust in Yahweh. Now, they come to Sinai, uh, the Mount of Sinai, and this is where we're going to pick up this morning. It's the very place where Abraham almost sacrificed his son Isaac. And this is what happens when the people of Israel get there. Look down your Bibles, verse 3 of Exodus 19. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you, pay attention here, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. Everybody say kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words of the Lord that the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything that Yahweh has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, okay, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for them, for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live only, and pay attention to this part, only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. Okay, here's what's going on. God wants a kingdom of priests. How is he going to get a kingdom of priests? Because right now he just has one priest. It's Moses. So how is he going to get a kingdom of priests to come up the mountain, to meet with him face to face, to speak with him? He devises this plan, and the plan is this. Okay, 
My presence is dangerous. And so what we need to do is we need to set a, a boundary around the foot of the mountain, but there's going to be a moment where the ram's horn is blown, and when they hear that sound, I actually want all of the people to come up the mountain, and I want them to do with me what we've been doing, Moses. Okay, but here's what happens. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Oh, there's the trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. What were they supposed to do when the trumpet blasted? They were supposed to come up the mountain. What did they do instead? The trumpet blasted, and they trembled. They got afraid. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and, and called Moses to the, mountain, to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people. This is interesting. So they do not force their way through to see the Lord. And many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. What? Verse 23. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. Okay. What is happening here? <laughs> What's going on? This is kind of a weird story, and there's a debate in, amongst Hebrew scholars of what exactly happens here. Tim Mackey one time told me, he said, there's a glitch in the story. We don't really know exactly what took place, but there's a glitch. Something happens, and it doesn't work out according to plan, because remember, the trumpet was supposed to sound. The people were supposed to come up. It's not what happens. The trumpet sounds, the people get afraid, and God doesn't get the kingdom of priests that he wanted. See, God wanted Eden with each person, but this isn't what happens. And there's a dilemma that's recognized by all the Old Testament authors. The dilemma is this. There's distance between God and humans. The problem of Genesis 3 was not solved at Sinai. There's a veil. There's a curtain between humans and God. And the psalmists, they reflect this. Here, here, here's from Psalm 24. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? <laughs> who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Now, we know the story of Israel, and there's not many people who fit into that category, right? But as the story goes, it's at this very hill this very mountain that Jesus changes everything. It was here at Sinai, at Mount Moriah, the, the various names of this same hill, where, remember what happened with Abraham and Isaac, he was gonna sacrifice his son, and there was a ram caught in the thicket, right? And what does he say? The Lord says, this is the mountain where it will be provided. You're like, it was just provided. What do you mean it will be provided? Well, this is the same mountain where Jesus would end up being crucified, killed, like a ram caught in thorns. And a curious thing happens, especially to the priesthood. Here's what takes place at the crucifixion at the same place. 
And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit, coming to the end of his moments on the cross. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Why? What does this mean? What's the significance of this? Well, there was a very special place in the temple when God ceased dwelling on the top of the mountain and he came into the camp of the Israelites. They built a temple for him. And there was a very special room in the temple, the most holy place, where a curtain divided the presence of God from even the presence of the priest. Now, one time a year, there was one priest, the most high priest, who could go behind the curtain and meet with God face to face. What could this mean, the curtain being torn? What could it mean? It means that the distance, the separation was torn. Was the priesthood over or had it changed completely? See, this, what this means is that God's presence would no longer be veiled. There would no longer be distance between the presence of God and humanity. That's what this means. What this means is that anyone can approach the mountain. Anyone can become a priest who ascends the hill. Anyone could get the clean hands and the pure heart. They could become a saint, if you will. And so watch what changes from that psalmist. Who could ascend the hill of the Lord? Watch what changes to the New Testament, what Peter writes. But you, disciples, Christians, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Where have we heard this before? A holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. How profound. On the same hill as Abraham, it will be provided. On the same hill as Moses, Jesus now made intimacy possible for anyone who wants it. This is the gospel. It's don't be afraid. You can come close. The curtain has been torn. Anyone can be a saint. Anyone can be a priest. Anyone can meet with God face to face. There's nothing to fear. The point of this story, here's the point, is that Christians can be a people who have nothing to fear. It stretches into all of your life. See, if the curtain is torn, if Jesus said, it's finished, this must have theological and dare I even say identity effects. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, who? We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God, close around him, face to face, like Moses at Sinai, with the sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. How profound, how profound. It's the blood of Jesus that sprinkled you, made you clean, and you can ascend the hill. Yes, you, little old you, 
can live a life of meeting with God. Your whole life can be a life of meeting with God. So let us draw near. What is there to fear? I mean, really think about it. In all of life, what is there to fear if the God of the universe wants you close? What do you need to be afraid of? A wise friend of mine uh, once said this to me, and it's always stuck with me. He said this, all external conflict comes from internal conflict. Why do I have this tension with all these people and with this job and with my boss and with my, my relatives? Ah, it actually comes from internal conflict. All internal conflict comes from fear. All fear comes from a false view of yourself, the world, and God. iPhone's out. Take a picture. That's good, that's good stuff right there. So let me ask you this question this morning. How do you think about the God on the mountain? How do you think, when you came in this morning, how do you think about the God on the mountain? Did you come in thinking, God's mad about something? It's kind of part of his character. He's got to be mad about something, and it's probably something that I did. Is God in a bad mood? Does God demand moral perfection from you? And so your whole life is about not walking on eggshells around what God may or may not be demanding from you, and sometimes you know and sometimes you don't know? Is God more like a stressed out dad than a dad of joy? How do you think about him? Is his love based on your performance? See, all of those beliefs are the core convictions of a fearful people. If any of those beliefs, if you've found any of those beliefs in your heart, you're living on fear. And so Saints Hill, what is Saints Hill? Saints Hill begins with a very simple suggestion. What if your view of God isn't quite right? What if the external conflict of your life points you to the internal conflict of your heart, which points you to the fear that you have, which points to a false view of who God is and what he thinks about you? What if the fear that you have about God is actually misinformed? Maybe this morning you could believe, if you dare, that he's actually invited you to come up this mountain to become a priest. What if you could be a saint? And when you see him up on the cross uttering, it is finished, tearing the curtain, allowing no distance between you and him. What if you really begin to understand his love for you? You begin to understand, oh, I wasn't just sprinkled once. I was sprinkled with his blood in such a way that it didn't rub off. And so all my life, regardless of what I do, is, is covered by this identity. I'm a saint. I'm a priest. I have full assurance to walk into his throne room, regardless of my behavior. His behavior matters more than mine. See, this priestly identity, when it grabs you, your life will change in three ways, and these three things have shaped this church profoundly, and I want to talk about each of them. The first thing that will happen in your life is that you will get a commitment to the presence of God. When you, when you understand that God is not, he's not repulsed by you, he's not upset at you, he's not mad at you, and he actually wants you to come near, you'll begin to, to your whole life to draw near to him, to want to be around him. The Christian life is about pursuing the presence of God because it's what you were made for. The, the, the word for glory in Hebrew is kavod. Say that with me, kavod, kavod. 
And it, it has a range of meaning that refers to the physical appearance or the manifestation of God's presence. It's his, uh, his weighty presence. It can mean significance or meaning or weight. And if you've ever had a moment in your life, which I think many of you probably have, where you've encountered God, you've sensed that the weighty presence of God is here in this moment. So think about what's being said in Isaiah 43, verse 7, where Isaiah says, he says this, you were created for God's glory. What does that mean? Well, I think that it could mean that humans were created to exist in the presence of God. Outside of the presence of God, there's no life. Inside of the presence of God, this is what I was made for. Have you ever felt that? See, this is a priestly vision for life. Think, think for a moment, what were the privileges of a priest? The privileges of a priest were immense. They got to meet with God. They got to enjoy him. They got to minister to him, to feel that deep sense of being known by him. See, see this, is our, this is the church's privilege today. This is our privilege this morning. Many churches are, are built to first minister to people. What are the needs of people? How are these people doing? How should we pastor this people? You know, I read this book. I won't name the, the name of the book. Um, but I read this book when I was in college all about church planting, how to plant a church. And the whole strategy was this. You need, just like a marketing group would do, you need to figure out your target person. How much money do they make? Where do they live? What are their interests? What kind of food do they like? What kind of culture do they kind of generally, what's their milieu that they generally live in? And then you need to tailor your church around that kind of person you're trying to attract. Not at Saints Hill. I threw the book away. Uh, Saints, okay, yeah, I get, I get, maybe, that, maybe that is a good thing. I got rid of it. Here's why. Because Saints Hill exists to minister to him first. And we have this, we have this wild idea that, that we actually believe the best way to minister to people is to minister to him. It's to host him in, to such a degree that people don't, look, I'm going to get to this in a second, so maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but, but, if, if, if this church's health is dependent upon my ability to come up with new topics to talk about so that we address all of the issues of your lives, this church is going to fail. But, but if, if, if we are designed to host God himself here, then he will address the things you didn't even know needed to be addressed. He will speak to the things you didn't even know you needed him to speak to. And you'll walk away from, from a gathering more full than you entered. You won't walk away with just more information than when you entered. See, we have the same conviction that Moses had after seeing God. You know, a few chapters earlier in this Exodus story, God told Moses, he said, you know what? I'm, I can't be around these people anymore. And so, so here's the thing. I'm gonna give you an angel. And this angel is going to make all of my promises over you guys come true. And it's going to go with you into the promised land. You're going to get all the things that, all the things that I promised you. You're going to get them. I'm not going to go with you. This angel's going to go with you. And what does Moses say? If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. In other words, we don't want the promised land if you're not there. There's no such thing for a Christian of the good life without him. He is the good life. And this, guys, this is key. We're like, what is Saints Hill? What is this church all about? This is key to the Saints Hill ethos. So much of Christianity imagines the consequences of Jesus, the impact of Jesus, the tangible things of Jesus, all good things. We call those kingdom things. Those are good things. Those are things that we want to see happen in Newburgh. 
But for us, rather than aiming at those various things, we simply aim for him. It's a singular focus. His presence. What are you doing, Lord? You know, every single, you know, we, we, I don't have some kind of grand plan of like, then we'll teach on this. And when people have gotten that, then we'll teach on this. And when people have gotten that, then we'll be ready for revival. I have no plan. Here's the plan. The plan is this. Every, and, and ask Jake, ask any of our leaders. The plan is this. Oh, what are you sensing for this week? I feel like the Lord might be up to this. Maybe we should lean into that. We should probably wait a little bit here. Maybe we'll, guys, it's an, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm preaching. I'm preaching. Okay. Here's the conviction. If he's invited us into his presence, then our whole lives are shaped around hosting him. What are you doing, Lord? What do you say about this? You know, I have all my thoughts about this and my fears informing this response. And, but what are you saying, Lord? What do you think? Now, this means, secondly, secondly, this means that our definition of discipleship is unique. Our definition of transformation is unique, and we call it single-focused transformation. What I mean is that there are two ways of going about transformation. How do, you, how do you become more like Jesus? How do you change? How do you look at the ugly parts of your life and see those things reversed to look more like Jesus? And, and there's really two different ways that I see in the church, and really, you know, you can see this in almost any religion or in our broader culture as a whole. And those two different ways are mechanical change or organic change. Mechanical change or organic change. Mechanical change is like you have a pile of bricks and you want to change that pile of bricks to become a bigger pile of bricks and so you put more bricks on top of the pile. It's mechanical. It's from the outside. Organic change is a little bit different. Organic change is like a tulip bulb. This ugly brown ball can become a beautiful tulip from the inside change. And one of these types of change, one of these methods of change, is the only option for, who, for disciples who have been invited up the mountain. See, mechanical change is fear change. It's fear change. So imagine this. You're not going to like this, but this is my example. Imagine this. How's that for starting? Imagine that I'm in line at grocery outlet. And it's taking forever. And I'm like... There's like four other grocery outlet employees just talking in the wine section. Let's get some check stands open here, people. It's what you do. But, but nobody comes to open up any other check stands. And so I'm looking ahead of me and I'm like, what is taking so long? This is ridiculous. And then I realize the person in front of me is trying to get their food stamps to work. And their food stamps aren't working. Time and time again, they keep on trying it. And then, I don't know about you, but I get even more frustrated. And I even get philosophical in my annoyance. I think, why does America have a safety net like it does? And I think, why do we even have food stamps? Look, this person has food stamps and they have an iPhone. How does that make any sense? And then I remember, I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah. I'm a Christian. <laughs> and I think, you know, life is really hard. And everybody has a story. How could I be so callous? I'm a pastor in this town. But here's the thing. The guilt seeps in. How could I think the way that I just thought? But the guilt doesn't help me. Why? Where did the guilt come from? 
It came from fear. I should be better. I should be better. Okay, I'm going to be better. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm an enlightened person, you know. I, I live in the West, you know. How, how could I have thought that way? I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I'm a, I'm a pastor. It's a very serious role. And, ah. Oh, no. What have I done? I've gotten mechanical. I have just moved fear around in my life. My mortality, or sorry, my morality is then only as strong as my fear of being a bad person or what someone may think of me. It's, it's changed from the outside. It's, I can't believe that I thought that. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. Bad. I gotta change. I haven't actually become more like Christ. I've simply laid upon my shoulders the expectations of others and of my own ideals of the kind of person that I should be, and I've called it righteousness. But it's self-righteousness. This kind of change is about making sure you cover your bases, that you're really a good Christian. And this is honestly, this was my vision of discipleship before I understood that I was a priest. I, I thought that being, being a good Christian is about uh, the things that, how many things I can get right in my life. So I, I got to make sure that I study the Bible enough. I got to make sure that I serve in the right places. I got to make sure that I attend church or uh, that I understand my Enneagram number or, you know, whatever it is. And, and so it was this shotgun approach, if you will. I better cover all my bases so that I can mature and be like Jesus. Instead of a single focus love relationship. For those who have gone up the mountain, this will not suffice. There's another kind of change. There's another kind of discipleship, and it's organic change. It's love change. It's single-minded transformation. It's this. I transform to the degree that I take in his loveliness. I become lovely as I gaze upon his loveliness. When I see all that Jesus has done for me, I begin to change because of his love. Not because I fear what people may think of me. Not because I, I fear that I'm somehow letting God down or disappointing him or I'm headed for hell because of my thoughts and my actions. No, it's because of him. And it actually, when you, when you see him, when you really see him, it plants something deep in you and you change. You become something different. I think this is what Paul was describing in 2 Corinthians. Here's what he says. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, his presence, we're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Do you see what he's saying here? It is contemplation of God. It is a focus on him, a listening to him, a communicating of our fears and our hopes. It's, it's putting the gospel deep down that actually changes you. It's because you've been invited up the hill. So your whole discipleship journey, you don't get down on yourself. You don't allow guilt to seep in. You don't live in fear. No, your discipleship journey becomes a happy journey of walking in the paid-for reality with a father who celebrates all of your growth, no matter how small it may be. Rather than a shotgun approach at being a Christian, we understand there is one thing required, and it's time at his feet. And there, time at his feet, looking up at him, in that space, that's where our motives are pruned, our ways of thinking are pruned, 
our behavior begins to look more and lo- more and more like him out of a place of love instead of fear. So secondly, because we are saints who can go up the hill, <laughs> who can meet with the Lord, we are secure in our discipleship to Jesus. And it changes. This changes how we do church as a whole, what this all looks like, what church means. So thirdly and lastly, church is research and development and family. We did a whole series uh, back in August that I'd really encourage you to listen to if you haven't listened to it called uh, Why the Church? It was, a three, was it three messages, I think? Uh, why the church? What, what, is the, what is the church? It was more, it, this is more St. Hill specific, this message. It was more broad, like what is the church um, exactly? And I really encourage you to listen to it. Uh, but just a couple of thoughts for this morning. The church, what is the church? The church exists to embody the spirit of Jesus in the world. What does that mean? It, what, what that means is that for people who are unaware of the spiritual nature of our physical world, they should see the church and they should think, huh, you know, those people almost make me think that Jesus is real. So the aim of the church, the aim of Saints Hill, really matters because it's going to embody to our community, to Newburgh, the greater community, what the aims of Jesus are. When they look at us, they're going to be like, well, that must be what Jesus is about. That must be what he's like. So our aims really matter. And here's what I want to say. With a good father, if we have a good father, and we have the goal of hosting his presence, then church is not a performance. It's an organic experiment. (laughs) Some of you I've met with you, and I've been like, yeah, St. Hill's an experiment. We're in the laboratory right now. Like, we have a stage, and it looks like it's a performance. It's not a performance. It's not a performance. This is about us growing together on a journey together of discovering what God has for us and for our community. And so the church is in this constant place of research and development. If you're you're wondering, like, what's Saints Hill about? You know, that's that's where we are. I'm not a professional. I'm not a professional. My job is not to mine the latest evangelical practice and deliver it to you in a nice, neat package of a sermon or a book or a class or, you know, whatever. No, 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 no. The church and the church staff are not professionals who study psychology and science and history and politics, just hoping to be able to answer all of the questions that a modern person is faced with. No, that's the shotgun approach. That's, that's, that's not what we're here for. Every believer our staff included, has one job, and it's the job of introduction. See, if people become more like Jesus by seeing him, then the aim of the church must be encounter. That's the aim of the church. What's the church about? It's about encounter. It's about encounter. We have no grand project. We have no greater vision than simply providing place for encounter to happen. So when I say that the church will never exit research and development, I mean that the methods of the church, even what we're doing right now, like a sermon that's like, you know, coming on 35 minutes, even what we're doing right now is not set in stone. It's flexible. We're, you know, we're constantly in movement, constantly. Well, what is the Father doing right now? What is he up to in our people right here? And, and, and maybe we should try this or, or try that. See, The methods of the church are only as important as they are effective in delivering people to encounter. If it's not providing encounter, they're not effective. We're not going to use those methods, right? 
So our value then becomes experimenting and trying different ways of listening and following rather than neat and tidy programs. You know, sometimes I'll have, the, I'll have a meeting with somebody and they'll be like panicked that something didn't go well in the church. You know, people are gonna get the wrong idea. You know, you guys used to have like more people in the band, but it was only three people this week. What's going on? You're killing the vibe. I'm like, I'm not panicked. Or something went wrong in a small group, or you know, whatever. And it's sort of like, oh, you were looking for a good product. But see, to me, the church is a journey of discovering God together. Sometimes the very things that people bring to me as problems in the church are actually signs of health to me. <laughs> I, I really think there's a mind shift from church's organization to church's family that needs to happen. And it's been happening, it's wonderful. But it's, we gotta so detach ourselves from like, I come to this as a content consumer to give, show me something new. I remember I, I once preached, uh, I thought a good message one time at a church that I used to work at, and I had a guy come up to me and he said, you used that story before. Come up with something better, man. <laughs> and I was like, ah, yes. You think this is a TED Talk. This is a family. Like, let me ask you this. How would your view of the church change if you saw yourself not as a consumer of content, but as a mother or a father here? or a brother or a sister here, if you began to see yourself that way, a part of this family, mess would excite you. <laughs> you would be like, that's a sign of health. That means that people have been empowered to the degree that they made a mess. That's beautiful, because we're family. We're not trying to come up with this fancy, amazing product for the community, or like, we're not on our best behavior here. No, no, no. We're encountering God together. That means people are gonna lay down and weep sometimes. They're gonna dance in the back. They're gonna wave their flags. They're gonna get messy and snot all over their shirts because God's encountering them, because it's family. Here's the rub if you view church as an organization. When we value the tidiness of the church, we will often sacrifice people in order to maintain order and beauty what we perceive as order and beauty. But it's not family. It's not family to do that. So what if we define the church differently? What if, we define, what if our definition of, the, of church as beauty changed? Or what makes a beautiful church change? How many of you have ever heard of the philosophy wabi-sabi, the Japanese philosophy? I want those hands high, because if you know about it, I mean, look at these people. These are, the, these are very intelligent, very, very mature, amazing people. Wow. Wow, pat yourself on the back for that. Okay, back in the 1700s in Japan, um, the, the, the height of civilization, the height of their culture revolved around the tea ceremony. And so they had these really ornate teapots, ornate for the 1700s, uh, made of very fine porcelain. And they had this entire, you know, um, way of going about it. In many ways, I think looking back through maybe even like a Marxist lens, you would look at it and you would say, it was a way of distinguishing class. There are some who belong to this class and others who belong to the lower class. And the tea ceremony became this kind of dividing line of you're not invited to this tea ceremony. You don't even have utensils in your house good enough for the tea ceremony. And so there's, there was this philosophy that began to um, bud in the 1700s, 1800s in Japan. It was the philosophy of wabi-sabi. And the lower classes began to say, well, we can't afford your utensils. We can't afford to participate in your style. And so what we're gonna do is define beauty differently. 
So here's a teapot. This is in the wabi-sabi style. And, and most, if you just even were to Google Japanese uh, ceramics today, you would not find this kind of teapot on the left. You would find the kind of teapot on the right. It is so taken, the ethos of what it means to be, of what Japanese design is. And, and what is it? It's earthy. It's not perfectly white. It's flawed in some sense. It's, it's, you know, it looks like the handle got like squished in the kiln or something like that. It, it, it reflects the gravity of life, if you will. It reflects the brokenness of the world. It reflects not perfection and line and the metaphysical ideal. It reflects what is. It's evidence of a journey. The experiment of Saints Hill must be defined as beauty for it to be promoted. So for us, we need to, I, I'm, I'm encouraging us to make a shift from one to the other. What if we had a different view that, that when church isn't exactly what you would have preferred, they didn't play the song that you preferred, you're able to look around you and go, are people still encountering? Yes, we're, on a, we're in a family on a journey together. We're still in motion. It's beautiful. When somebody gets up here and it's their first or second time speaking and they say something that you're like, I don't know about that. We don't cross our arms in judgment and think, when's Alex coming back? <laughs> that was probably me, actually. I'm the one who gets all the emails about my messages. So, so it's like, it's not like that. It's, it's, oh, we're part of a family. Maybe I should get together with them and just see how they interpret that passage. I'd like to just hear from them because we're family. That's family. That's not a performer. That's not somebody who's trying to like, you know, come up with great content for me. That's a brother. That's a sister. <laughs> what if wabi-sabi into the, uh, seeped into the ways that we saw our church? Evidence of life. Evidence of beauty. And in a family culture, here's what happens in the church. You begin to think, you know, I've got one life. And providentially, for better or for worse, this is the person that I'm sitting next to. These are the people who are in my life. And I'm not going to try to control them. I'm not going to try to control this to make it what, it what my ideal of a good church is or my ideal of a good you know, experience at church is. Instead, I'm going to ask you, God, to show me how you see these people. How do you see this church? What is its role to be in this town so that I can honor and stir them up? So these are the three things. If you're wondering, what is Saints Hill about? Because we've been invited into the very presence of God, we've been freed up to be focused on his presence, not distracted by the many other things. We now have a single focus when it comes to our discipleship, not trying to cover our bases. We change out of love. And church becomes a place of research and development. It's an experiment that we all get to participate in. These things have deeply shaped our church because Jesus first came down the hill to get us so that we could live lives of meeting with him on the hill. And that's what we're going to do right now. So let's stand together. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.